This is Blockbuster Film School. This is Blockbuster Film School. Welcome in, welcome in. You are at the Blockbuster Film School. I'm Alex Bonner, joined as always by the handsomest devil in the whole wide world, Mr. Nicholas Souter. Hi. Hi, <laughs> nice to see you. And is also, he's here, he's wearing a tuxedo and a top hat, and his name is Super Producer Brian Tepps. Hi. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Nice to see you. We're here. To do another episode of Blockbuster Film School. You're excited. I'm excited. Nick, are you excited? Yes. <laughs> Nailed it. All right. Well, why do you come to Blockbuster Film School? To learn about film and filmmakers. And we're here to talk about one of the most famous and most craziest and most wonderful, but also sometimes not good, <laughs> making movies, directors in the history of mankind. His name is Mr. Spike Lee. Yeah. <laughs> Spike is an interesting guy. Um, we'll start with our normal thing. Nick, what was the first Spike Lee movie you remember seeing? I remember randomly tuning, like going through the channels, and I was like, oh, that's Wesley Snipes. <laughs> Who's that woman with him? Oh, they're being attacked in the street. It was Jungle Fever. <laughs> okay, that's... And the only time I've ever watched old. any of that. <laughs> HBO, like 8 o'clock in the 90s was... It's kind of like HBO at 3 p.m. now. <laughs> Truth Pretty be much, told, yeah. yeah. Exactly. So you're saying you're a big fan of Jungle Fever, the movie. Not the weird no, racist No, not even the title. <laughs> yeah, Jungle in all fairness, I never went back to it, so. It's funny to talk about Spike because sometimes his movies are some of the best movies that anyone has ever made. They are unbelievably good. A couple of his movies are truly, truly classics, and some of his movies are swings and misses. They are. He's definitely hit or miss for me. Yeah. More than I think anyone else we've done a subject on the show about. I think so. And I will talk about it, but I think, and we get into his style and his technique, but I definitely think there's that, we were talking about similar filmmakers in a little way where he's got a little bit of that Robert Altman thing where he learns how to shoot the gun while he's firing the gun. You know what I'm saying? He's, he's not a guy like a Stanley Kubrick or a David Fincher who really plans this out, plans it out for years, is super precise in what he wants it to look like, to sound like. I'm not saying that Spike doesn't do a lot of pre-production, but he makes a movie like every year. And sometimes after he's made a couple of movies, he figures out what he really wanted to make and makes that movie. And that movie is awesome. But those movies he spent trying to figure out what movie that was, sometimes. I think they're still better than... A lot of people's movies, but I would disagree. <laughs> we could get into that. He's made a lot of trash. He's made a lot. <laughs> he's definitely made some really, which is the craziest bit about him because he's made, like I said, some of the best movies. I know, made. but like and, to jump ahead, yes, like the difference between watching Black Klansman mm-hmm. and watching The Five Bloods, yes, you couldn't tell it was the same director. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. Like Black Klansman <laughs> is. A masterclass in direction. Yes. And there's so much emotion. It's so well done. Characters are well thought out. The female characters are well developed. All this stuff. And then you have the five bloods where it's like, oh, were they like live editing? Yeah. <laughs> Did they? Was this one of those ones where they kind of wrote it while they were there? Yeah. Just, like, <laughs> you know, it would be an interesting conversation to have. And then they just do that. And 
it's yeah. kind of interesting. Also, the action sequences. We'll talk about it. It's, it's funny to just talk about five. The action sequences in the Five Bloods are some of the dumbest weirdest, things. dumbest stuff I've ever seen. And there is good stuff in the Five Bloods. That's the other thing. That's, that's the thing. Like, I was into it. Yeah. And then I was like, oh. Oh, it's still going. This, oh. is the other, this is the other problem with Spike Lee movies. Yes. Some of them, like Malcolm X, it's three and a half hours. Yeah. It works. It yeah. needs to be that long. The Five Bloods is two and a half hours for some reason on a Netflix. <laughs> exactly. What are you, Martin Scorsese? I mean, they are friends, so they were trying to outdo each other. Yeah, their, for their real. really oh boring God. long movie that they put out in 2019. <laughs> so let's, let's start off differently. Yes. What's better? The Five Bloods or the Irishman? I feel like they have similar flaws. I feel like Huge they similar flaws. They are both too long. They both have terrible action sequences for different reasons. Because yeah. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure Chadwick Boseman could still do really cool action sequences, but they just chose not to do that. They yeah. just had him shooting at what appeared to be CGI people in the trees. It was very strange. I don't think their guns even shot anything. They, yeah, they were like, it had weird cartoony CGI. Muzzle blast. Muzzle blast, which felt very strange. It felt like I was watching some sort of like Nickelodeon movie or something. Yeah. It was very. Nickelodeon got real dark. Yeah. It was Nick at night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But like the main difference, the thing I liked about the Five Bloods more mm. than Irishman is that. They stayed old in the flashbacks. Yes. That is the best thing they could have done. Yes. That was like, I was like, okay, cool. I'm into this. Yes. But at least those actors in that movie are in their 40s and 50s and could do those things a little bit. Yeah. It's not like having a 974-year-old man (laughs) in... Also, there's the other thing. The main problem with him trying to kick a dude in the face in the street and he can't move his leg is that he's in like Herman Munster platforms... (laughs) Because the character is supposed to be like six feet tall. Yes. De Niro's not, and he's like taller than Pacino. And he's walking like the behind the set photos, he's literally dressed like Herman Munster and he's got fucking like disco stew shoes on. And he's trying to kick somebody in the face and like he can't move his no, body. He can't. And look, everyone gets old, but he has that old man thing too, where he can't really lift his knees up to a certain point yeah. or his arms. And I'm supposed to be intimidated by this. No, it's not happening. No. If a 900 year old Robert De Niro comes up to me, I'm more worried about him falling over and hurting himself than I am him attacking yeah, me. No. Like that's, I've I, seen crash <laughs> dummies that were more threatening than him. Yeah. The idea that an old man like that would beat you up is, is preposterous. Yeah. But, um, and you brought it up. My first movie that I saw of Spike Lee's was Malcolm X. Uh, my parents rented it. It got nominated for Best Picture. It was one of the few times that, strangely enough, Spike Lee, one of the more prolific, also one of the great, his movies make money. A lot of, not all of them, but the ones that make money make a lot of money. And Malcolm X was his second really great critical success. And it's the first time I believe that he worked with Denzel Washington and Denzel Washington was really coming alive and hit his stride. And so we rented it and I remember loving the shit out of it, even as a kid. I think my parents were sort of like, this movie is long, <laughs> which which I do, it is long, but it's like you said, it's kind of worth it. But it's, uh, it's totally worth it. And it's one of his two PG-13 movies. Yeah. We actually watched that in school. Yeah. We watched clips of it for sure. <laughs> They were like, yeah, three and a half hours is like half your school day. So also, real fast, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Mo Better Blues was first. Oh, was it okay? Yeah. That's that's fair. I I know they work together. I like when they work together a lot. The we'll movies talk, are good. We'll talk about he got Denzel's game. good. Denzel's great. Yeah. Denzel's truly one of the great actors in the history of cinema. He is so good and can do things that other people can't do. It's yeah. it's wild. If you haven't had a chance yet, 
Go forward in time and listen to our Denzel Washington episode. It's awesome. It's awesome. Or if you're getting to this late, go yeah. back and listen to our Denzel Washington episode. It's spectacular. It's going to be super fun. It's going to be super fun. Forward, back, upside down, turn around. All around. around. Ooh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Never going to give you up. Oh, I was, <laughs> I was going for a uh, round, baby. Round. You went straight into something else. You went I just into, started Rickrolling. Yeah. I started just. Uh, <laughs> All right, but let's go into it just a little bit. Shelton. Jackson, a.k.a. Spike Lee, was born March 20th, 1957. He's an American film director, producer, screenwriter, actor, and at one point a professor. Um, his production company, 40 Acres and a Mule Filmworks, has produced more than 35 films. That's pretty good. He's been making feature films since 1986. He's been operating basically as long as we've been alive as a film director. He looks real good for being around that long. However, he was the youngest person ever, basically, I forget what they call it at the Oscars, but the Lifetime Achievement Award he got when he was only 53. So uh, even though the Oscars doesn't like to give him an actual Oscar, they, in 2015, they were like, we know we're never going to give you an Oscar, even though they would eventually. But yeah. They were like, eh, here, here you go. See, we're not racist. See, we're not racist. They like held yeah. him up and they were like, see, see, see. And it's really easy to hold him up too. <laughs> he tried to escape, but Clooney was holding him. So, uh, but he was born in Atlanta, but we know him better because when he was a little kid, his family. Brooklyn. His family moved to Brooklyn. Hey, well, you, you stay Brooklyn, I stay Brooklyn. So a lot of his movies take place in New York. A lot of his movies have a true New York flair. That's a big element of his movies. His characters have a kind of New York edge. His characters are witty and biting and occasionally obnoxious. Which is surprising because he's a huge <laughs> Nets fan. Yeah, yeah, he loves the Nets. He Especially when they're in Jersey. <laughs> he loves them so much. I've read an interesting thing about how last year they finally had a thing where he always would come in this one secret entrance to the Knicks games and they finally were like, you can't come in that entrance. There's a We have literally gotten to the point where we have a VIP entrance for celebrities and he got like super butthurt. He was like, no, I like coming in through the weird employee entrance. And that's the guy. That's what happens when you become a rich, famous artist. These are the kind of problems you have. You get into an argument with the owner of the Knicks because of which entrance you're allowed to come in. Yeah. So he's been working. Um, he started, he was making student films as soon as he got going. He grew up in a kind of big family. He attended John Dewey High School in Brooklyn's Gravesend neighborhood. Then he went to Morehouse College, which will affect some of his movies, which is Morehouse is a traditionally black university in the United States. They have a lot of famous alumni. It would definitely affect his filmmaking in a way because his movies obviously have a lot of characters who are African-American and also the sort of African-American experience in America. And a lot of his movies are about educated characters who are black in America. And I find that to be very interesting because strangely he is an educated black man in America. So strange that he would make movies about that all the time. But <laughs> I'm not trying to be weird. It's just that's... Kind of everybody. Everybody has their, you know, a little bit of their thing. And they make David Fincher is maybe secretly a psychopath. So he's always making movies about psychopaths. Um, I think David Fincher doesn't have any real feelings. <laughs> I think so. I think he felt it. I think very young, he's like, I don't like the way this makes me feel. I'm going to stop. <laughs> and then it's like Nick Cage just showed up and somebody started playing like saxophone really loud. And he just threw a glass thing were, or something. He was like emotionless. Was there were tears coming out of his face. They were like, David, you're crying. He's like, no, I'm not. No. Like, like you are. He's like, what is this water coming out of my face? 
After Morehouse College, where he made, at Morehouse, he made his first student film, Last Hustle in Brooklyn, which I've never seen, but it's never been released. He got a BA at Morehouse, and then he went to New York University's Tisch School of Arts, which is very famous. A lot of famous directors came out of there, including he went there with Ang Lee and Ernest R. Dickerson, Dickerson, who was his kind of main cinematographer. That's his guy. And who's even in a couple of his movies. That's a big thing. We'll talk about that also. He casts a lot of unorthodox casting, either people who are from the actual place where he's working or, you know, he got game actual basketball players who aren't, you know, normally actors, that kind of thing. So using his cinematographer to play a cinematographer in movies, he does this a lot. And I f- He reuses all the same actors all the mm-hmm, time now. Mm-hmm. I, oh, him every, and John Turturro are connected. Yeah. Also, every time fucking Bill Nunn shows up, mm-hmm. like, I get it. He's a great actor. Yes. When I see him in other movies... He's Bill Nunn. When he's in fucking Spike Lee movies, it's like, oh, they resurrected Radio Raheem. It's never not going to be weird <laughs> yes. to see him in another Spike Lee movie. No. He's the weird uncle in uh, He Got Game. I yeah. Mean, he's, he's, he has to he be. Got old fast. Dude, we talked about this last night. We watched it. <laughs> that is true. That is true. He's great, though. He has wonderful hair. I love the way his hair looks. Oh, he's great, yeah. He always has, like, interesting hair and all this stuff. But he started in 1983, premiered his film, his independent short film, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, We Cut Heads. Have you ever seen that? No. I actually saw that at Columbia. It was pretty interesting. And Well, I got kicked out of Columbia, so. I know you did. Thanks for bringing that up again. Uh, and also, it was weird. They were like, do you guys know a guy named Nick? Because we're looking for him because he's been wandering around the campus and we need to make sure he does it. You and know, like, that actually might like, be I've true. I've seen him. I've seen him before. And I gave them a full description of what you look like and some Polaroids of you that I kept uh, while you were asleep. And they were like, why do you have these? And I was like, and then I just, I threw some, our- I had a little salt in my pocket and I threw it in their face and ran. And they gave me a degree. They said, here's your degree, sir. You've mastered being a weird snitch ninja. Okay, so he... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, His dad composed the score for some of his movies, Billy. But in 1985, it takes off because he started his first feature film. And we'll start with that. She's got to have it. Yeah. And um, it's a pretty interesting... Like all of his movies, has elements of comedy, elements of drama, elements of politics, race, it... Wild stuff, sex, sex is a big thing, sexual dynamics between men and women. Um, He doesn't nail those. He doesn't always. Sometimes he gets closer than other movies. (laughs) I feel like She's Gotta Have It is interesting. It's very 80s in that understanding of it. Yeah, but then, like, you know, spoilers ahead if you haven't seen this movie that's almost 40 years old. Yes. The third act, the entire (laughs) mood of it changes. And there's a sexual assault that even Spike Lee said if he was going to film it today, he would not include it. No, no. Totally changes the entire movie and kind of just... Yeah. That's why I've never watched it a second time. Yeah, and I remember reading a weird uh, review for it and it said that it was like rough sex. I was like, "Uh, this is kind of a... This is like a weird sexual assault. But... It's a good first attempt in terms of for your first movie to make something like that, that that's crazy. It's a big deal. He, yeah. he blew the fuck up after this. Mm-hmm. He became all- Spike Lee after this movie. It took one movie. Yeah. He's also that character, the Mars character. Yeah, uh, Mars Blackman. Mars Blackman, that's him. And he is just being him, basically. Also, spoiler alert, Spike Lee's in almost every single one of his How movies. How do you feel about that? About him being in all of his movies? You know, I'm if you're good, like Spike Lee is, I don't hate it. Yeah. Um, I find it a little weird when they cast themselves as the main character, even though in his best movie, in my opinion, that's something he does. But 
It's, I mean, it's ball sack. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it's like some cojones to be like, yeah. I'm also, I'm going to be the main character, the director, the producer, the editor. It's like, what are you, Ben Affleck? It's this. Ben Affleck wishes he was playing. Exactly. Yeah. But I don't know. How do you feel about it? It's like the rest of his movies. It's hit or miss. When it's a good movie, when it's do the right thing. I thought he was great as Mookie. Mm-hmm. But other times, it's like, a dude, just... <laughs> Stop. <laughs> Did you see Red Hook Summer? That's way down the line. A little bit of it. Yeah, I didn't see it. I, I just watched it. the scene where he brought back Mookie, and I just wanted to see what happened to him. And I was like, dude, did not. Sh- why did you do this? Why did you, you destroy this? this? <laughs> when he brings back Mars Blackman to be in the Michael Jordan Nike commercial, it's kind of cool. That's great. Because it's like a 30-second ad. Yes. And you can't. most people didn't know he wasn't just being Spike Lee. Yes, yes. And also, a lot of people probably didn't know who he was. Exactly. It's kind of fun. It's Yeah. And it has that Spike Lee style where it's very bombastic and yeah. things are kind of popping out at you. And He's sort of speaking loud in the camera. Yeah. It's got to be the shoes. It's, got, and you're, it's not the shoes. And you don't – and in that way where kind of like people from New York, at first you're like, what the fuck is this? And then you don't forget it. You don't yeah. forget because that mayhem, it just gets – dug into your brain forever. Um, in 1988, he makes School Days, uh, which is his movie basically about going to Morehouse College. Um, that's really when he, in my opinion, the first time he, because that one's about, like, at a historically black college, there are black protesters fighting with black frat boys who are dealing with black sorority sisters, and it's and, and just everybody in between. And you know, colorism, elitism, classism, political activism, hazing, uh, self-esteem issues, social mobility, hair texture. I don't, there's just the things that are in school days are wild and are not like any movie that's ever been made about college ever before. I don't know, ever again. And also just talking about did a lot of movies about characters who are black. It's never this complex. You know what I'm saying? It's never that black people are people and there are black jocks and black nerds and black, you know what I'm saying? It's like, and black political left political activists, black right wing political activists. And to actually show that on screen in a fun, honestly, I think school days is kind of fun. I know it's, it is fun. Yeah. yeah it's truly more of a, leans more to being a, more of a comedy, even though there is a lot of political stuff in there. I like school days. I don't know. What do you think? I like it. I saw it the one time going back to saying encore. Yeah. I saw most of his movies on encore. <laughs> Like, back in the day, Encore just was like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll oh, order yeah. this. Well, yeah. yeah, Spike Lee, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, it's a real thing. Like, um, there's that thing in there where the sororities, like, the the light-skinned black girls are called the wannabes, and the other ones are called the Nubians. Yeah. And it's like, I've seen black people give shit to other black people about how dark they are. So, like, this movie feels very honest. Right, right. And I think also something to be said, too, something when Spike Lee's really on – it has this element where after a while you don't really even are processing necessarily that these characters are like black. You know what I'm saying? It's just like these are interesting characters and you like watching them. And there are elements of racism and classism and stuff, but you just end up getting invested in the characters and what ends up happening to them. I don't know. It's And I feel like that's when it's the best. However, we have to talk about it because in 1989, with his third movie, he makes, in my opinion, what is truly a classic work of cinema. It is a mind-blowing work of cinema. If you've never seen Do the Right Thing, then here at the Blockbuster Film School, let us tell you to pull your head out of your ass and to now, as soon as you can, watch Do the Right Thing because 
it's it's the nineteen eighties version of Citizen Kane. I mean, it's fucking amazing. I it's it's goddamn amazing. What do you think about Do the Right Thing, Nick? It is classic. Yes, it's way more relevant now than I think anybody wants it to be. Yes, I was reading uh, the review. I rewatched it this weekend. I've never rewatched more movies for one episode of this podcast. Uh, that is fair. Uh, he's had so many fucking movies. Though. I know. I rewatched it this weekend and. It's heartbreaking. It mm-hmm. like truly is, and it's like it switches like this. Yeah, and like a lot of his movies do that, and like the last like thirty five minutes of the movie is just like it's relentless. And then I went back and I read some reviews about it, and uh, Roger Ebert was one of the few people who saw it at Cannes and like got it because everybody else in the reviews mentioned that this movie's dangerous because they <laughs> burned down Sal's famous pizzeria, oh. but they didn't even mention the fact that Radio Rahim was killed by the cops. Right. Ebert mentioned it. He got it. Yeah. Like, that's the thing that Spike Lee does in this movie. He doesn't take any sides. Mm. He shows everybody's side. He shows it from every angle. Like, the police are fucked up. That's fucked up. They know that. Yeah. But, like, the guys chilling over here, the three dudes, like Robin Harris and the Mm -hmm. fucking uh, guy from The Wire. (laughs) And then, like, you have... John Luke, you, oh John Turturro, the John Turturro John stuff. John Turturro stuff is insane. Though. It's insane. It's amazing. That conversation they talk about of like, who's your favorite basketball player? Like Magic Johnson. Like, yeah. You know, they're just going through all these like black people that John Turturro likes, and then he's like, no, but I don't, I just don't like black. You know, it's yeah. this really wild sort of true to life conversation. There's also it's truly in my mind the first movie where like it's Spike Lee's Brooklyn and it really pops off the screen and it's yeah. Bro- this is I was watching this weekend and it's like. This is a young filmmaker's movie. Yes. You cannot make this unless you are in your youth. Mm, I don't see older people making a movie with this much life and vibrance. <sighs> like, this is something where you have to be still attached to the old neighborhood. Mm. Like, that much to yeah. make something like that. I agree. I agree. And that the old neighborhood has to exist, which even talks about the, the thing where they accost the gentrifying guy who's buying. I was the- born in Brooklyn. Yeah. Oh! That <laughs> I mean, the Danny Aiello stuff is so good. It is the first movie he gets nominated for Best Picture. I don't think he got nominated for Best Director. He didn't. He didn't. Um, somebody brought it up at the Academy, at the thing. I think it was Laura Dern. Right. Or, you know what? It may have even, it just got Best Original Screenplay and Best Supporting Actor. Like, those were the nominations for it. It didn't even receive Best Picture. I don't know what else came out in 1989 right off the top of my head. I think it lost to Driving Miss Daisy. It didn't, well, maybe on the, for the screenplay? I mean, just in general. Yeah, that's possible. Driving Miss Daisy makes everyone a loser. Well, because that's more of a movie about how black people, when they're nice to old white ladies, it's a much nicer story than systemic racism and killing a kid for nothing and then people freaking out because the anger in America has nowhere to go. It has nowhere to go because anytime anything traumatic happens in America, particularly when it has to do with race, we're basically just told to fucking eat it. And then people freak out because they're like, well, what do you mean just eat it? And it's like, yeah, you should just eat it. Like, you should just fucking eat the racism and just take it, motherfucker. And it's like, maybe I'll burn this place to the ground. They're like, yeah, well, you know, whatever. But it is the right thing to do. It is. I'll put it this way. It's, I, I love the title. I love how it makes sense at a certain moment to you. It makes sense to everybody at a certain moment. And if you don't think it's the right thing to do, you're an idiot or possibly a racist. Uh, so it's an amazing movie. And it's also kind of, it's fun. It's kind of, a, I know that sounds weird. Like you said, he loves to do this thing where his movies are pretty pivots, fun. And then yeah. she gets wild. It is fun. But also yeah. it's like, that's the other part of it is that 
everyone in this movie is an asshole. Yeah. But everyone in this movie <laughs> it is, is a charismatic asshole. Yeah, that's the thing. That's the thing about this being so honest. Yes. You're not going to make these movies and it's like Reese Witherspoon. She's like this super bubbly, cool person. It's like, no. Reese Witherspoon is her character from that fucking HBO show I never, I lie about watching. <laughs> like, this is, this is honest shit. Like, do the right is thing. Arliss? Is Arliss? Wow. <laughs> First of all, don't come on this podcast and insult Robert Wool. <laughs> it was on for eight seasons. I've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. No, all of those characters, I remember, I've seen do the right thing a bunch of times, but I remember every character, every weird little character. The Samuel L. Jackson stuff is crazy. I, it's, you see, do the right thing. There we go. We'll, yeah. we'll continue to talk about also, it. Also, just real fast, Robin Harris and the fucking commissioner from The Wire <laughs> and the other guy. Yes. They improvised Ruby all D. of their lines. Oh, yeah. They had nothing written. And I think that there's an improvisational element to a lot of Spike Lee stuff. Yeah. He writes the parts that he wants to be written, and those are often really well-written pieces. But a lot of times, like I said, he gets people. He has actors he trusts. He takes people from the neighborhood. He's like, you're interesting. Like, just say that weird thing you always say, you know? I mean, he does that, and it's interesting. It works. After that, Universal Pictures gives him a two-movie deal, the 1990 Mo Better Blues and 1991 Nick's favorite movie, Jungle Fever. What do you feel about either of those movies? As they were not necessarily huge financial losses, but they weren't the big successes as they were hoping to be to follow-ups to do the right thing. I mean... I don't remember Mo Butter Blues. I didn't like Spike Lee in it. Uh, I don't remember that movie at all. I'm not going to lie. I know. I kind of remember Denzel in it a little bit. Yeah. And both of those movies, I remember the part where Wesley Snipes screams at the end of Jungle Fever, and it is kind of like Munich, in which I laughed. And I was like, I know I'm not supposed to laugh. But the way that he does it, though, you know what I'm saying? It's not about me laughing at the situation. or it's, He just, out of nowhere, is like, Ah! <laughs> And I'm sorry, people just screaming out of nowhere is funny. When it surprises you, it's funny. It's, yeah, I don't know. I feel like Mo Better Blues and Jungle Fever are those two movies that a lot of times people point to with Spike Lee where they're like, what about those dumb movies? <laughs> I don't think Jungle Fever is dumb. I yeah. just, it's not a movie. That's the thing. It's like a lot of his movies, I don't want to watch again. Yeah, that's an element. The ones that you people get like hooked into, those are the ones they just watch over and over. Right, right. And... I agree with that. And then also, I feel like when he was at Universal, they were like, now we want you to make something else that's fun, but also culturally biting. You know, and he's, I felt like he was trying to kind of make do the right thing again, but it didn't find that same sort of moment. You know what I mean? It didn't find that same sort of hook. But then what's interesting is that he then goes to Warner Brothers and they're like, do what you want to make. And what he wanted to make was Malcolm X. And Malcolm X, he takes Denzel and it's rad. It's the second one where I would say, if you haven't seen Malcolm X, you should. If you were alive in the 90s, you remember people wearing X hats and things. You remember that not just obviously Malcolm X is a great, interesting cultural character in the history of America, the history of race relations in the world. But at the time, it was cool, right? The movie Malcolm X was a punch in the face of white cinema. You know what I'm saying? It, yeah. was, a, it was something else in the movie theater. And also, I was like, this is cool. Like, I want to, the fact that this is kind of incendiary and kind of like, fuck the man, and I enjoyed it. What do you think about Malcolm X, Nick? I really liked it. It's a good movie. Denzel's yeah. great. Angela Bassett's great. Delroy Lindo. 
Totally. It's an important movie. Mm-hmm. And I hate saying that because it sounds like a fucking line, but it is. Here is two white men talking about Malcolm That's X. this entire episode, though. I know. <laughs> it's two, we, need to bring the, we need yeah. to bring this up. That we are three white we, men. We are One two of them white is, men and a vampire. We are two white men and a vampire. <laughs> the vampire is smart enough not to have a microphone during this. <laughs> There's two white guys talking yes. about how cool Malcolm literally <laughs> like the most auteur or only auteur black filmmaker relevant right now. Ooh, that's a very interesting point. Uh, I mean, Ryan Coogler, I mean, but not in the same way where Spike Lee is. Like no. Spike Lee, like, if I He's show- also, he's made three films. Tyler yeah. Perry makes the same Tyler Perry movies over and over. That is true. Uh, it gets a bunch of money. Yeah. There's, like, John Singleton never hit it again. No, he really didn't. You know, R.I.P. 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 There's a lot of great black filmmakers, but right. when you bring up black filmmaking- right. Everybody talks about Spike Lee. In that, Spike Lee yeah. is the go-to. And also he's, he really though is in that pantheon of like directors like Scorsese or, yeah. you know, I mean, you're in that same breath. You're talking about Spielberg and Spike Lee. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, These he are, directed fucking Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X. If he, nothing else, if Spike he stopped Lee. right there. Yeah. He, <laughs> he would have been fucking, um. Terrence Malick. Terrence Malick. Yeah. If he would have stopped making movies after Malcolm X, he would have been Terrence Malick. Everyone would have waited 17 years. Yeah. He turns out a movie. Every fucking Every fucking year. year. <laughs> which he, is kind of his problem, which we talked about. Yeah, but like, again, I'm just going to apologize for the entire podcast yeah. right now. <laughs> yes. In we the were, middle, not up front. No, no, Like, no, we no. got into it a little bit. We started yeah. talking about, like, yeah. started you, talking about Malcolm X and how cool that movie is. And we realized we are just two white dudes <laughs> in a living room <laughs> in Humble Park. We are in a super fancy studio. He's lying. State of the art. Yeah, so fancy that yeah, we I'm, are using old hooks from the no. broken blinds to hang blankets over the windows. No, these are lies. So it sounds better. No, these are lies. State of the art in here. I'm wearing a jetpack. Yeah, this isn't my parents' hand-me-down couch. Yeah. <laughs> no way. Nope. We have a robot that's <laughs> serving me drinks right now. Pour it in my mouth, robot. You are the coolest, Alex. Yeah, I know. What's up? Uh-huh. So are you leaning into the white thing right now? Is that what oh, you're doing? No, I'm not. What do you mean? Le- I mean, no, but I'm saying that I love Spike Lee and a lot of his movies. And when I watched Malcolm X as a kid, I distinctly remember saying to myself, I don't know how to fully relate to this, but I know that it's awesome. You know what I'm saying? I know I like movies about fighting against injustice. I like movies that are about people who are fighting against authority and the man and shitting on people weaker than them. And it hit me as a kid like not even understanding how much I would one day dislike the sort of machinations of government and racism in America. It was the first time that I really, you know, and I hope that was what Spike was trying to do was hit sort of maybe white kids in Chicago who aren't necessarily exposed to these issues, you know, these problems. Cause it's America is weird. You know what I'm saying? Like, I didn't like grow up being like, I don't want to be around black people, but there definitely were times where you're in a community that's only white people. You know what I'm saying? And that's the way it's been set up. And you don't realize until you are older, you're like, oh, this is kind of fucked up. It's not kind of fucked up. It's extremely fucked up. And I think it's interesting that we're doing Spike Lee right now. I think it's interesting we're having this conversation in the, we should be having this conversation all the time to the point where till finally it's just like over. Till finally we don't have to have this conversation and we can just start hating British people again like we're fucking supposed to, okay? When all Americans get together and we're like, Americans are dope and we all get treated 
decently and we all get a good pay and people aren't in cages and people aren't being systematically put into prisons and shot by cops. And then we can just start talking shit about the countries that are pieces of shit. And also I think Spike Lee, something I like about Spike Lee is that Spike Lee himself is always having this, it doesn't always work. Like you said, his conversations about sex and race and things like that, it doesn't always come across as, I guess, the way people would want it to come across. But he's having the conversation all the time. Like that part of he got game where suddenly <laughs> he's talking to Rosario Dawson. He's like, what are you, like Dominican or something? <laughs> She's like, I'm Puerto Rican. He's like, it's like, yeah, whatever, same thing. And I just, I know that's messed up, but that is like how people talk about race in America. It's crazy. There's this weird brash mayhem of it. Like, yeah, but also that just goes back to more of his sexism. That's in all of his movies. That Interesting. That's like a sexism huge... in the world. No, I know. But when you have it in all your movies all the time and you don't have like great female mm, characters true. in half your movies, that's sort of an issue. It turns into a huge thing. But Rosario Dawson is evil. I don't know if you know that though. Anyways, <laughs> She, no. Because also, but then he would use Rosario. I don't know. I like Rosario. We'll talk about it. There's a lot of movies. So we're kind of going through some of this, you know, the chronology and stuff. But we could kind of talk about it, any of the movies you want with Spike Lee, and we can get into them. But spoiler alert for He Got Game. But she's a little bit of like, nobody's really the bad guy. It's just sort of based on this very interesting thing of when someone becomes famous or becomes powerful, they begin to have people who want things from them. And you start to figure out that maybe people you trust or people you care about have ulterior motives, you know? And that's not necessarily evil, but it is something that's in the no, world. No, you do have a movie where you have the guy who accidentally kills his wife tell his son mm. that you can't trust women. That is a thing that happens in that movie. Right, but... But also his uncle does it too. Right. Everyone around him is trying to do it. Everyone's trying to exploit the guy right. th- from the poor neighborhood that they also live in. But it's interesting because it's like you said, the male characters are also not good, a lot of them. That's kind of the point of He Got Game, which I He Got Game is one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. And the fact that Ray Allen has to navigate this, that's more of kind of the what's going on, you know, is he's surrounded by weird characters. He's surrounded by who can he really trust? Who can he... And I suppose the only element is, like, he can kind of trust his dad because he's such a, you know what I'm saying? He can trust him to be him. Like, he's always going to be this kind of weird piece of shit. But it's interesting. Because we did jump ahead, I suppose. Here's some stuff between, in 1994, he makes Crooklyn. Yeah, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Very underrated, I think. Yeah. The screenplay is also him and his sisters wrote Crooklyn. And one of his brothers. Yeah. Which I... Crooklyn is great because it's just... Like, that could be any family. Yeah. And also, Alfre Wooder is a well-developed character, to get back to what we were just talking to. Right. Which And that movie, the end of it, fucking hurts. All of his movies kind of end with pain. Pain, yeah. None of his movies have happy, happy, joy, joy endings. No. You know? That's part of his thing. But then, also, that's... He's talking about the black experience in America, and there's heartbreaking shit. You know what I'm saying? No, and, I know, yeah. Like, 95 Clockers... I refuse to watch it because Harvey Keitel is the lead. <laughs> yeah, I hate Harvey Keitel. Yeah. He can't uh, act for shit. It's it's okay. But it would eventually, you know, the book would eventually become The Wire. So he had the right idea 
Uh, but and, you put Harvey Keitel in it, so it's bad delivery. Yeah. It's funny to watch Clockers, though, because there's a lot of, like, the first season of The Wire in it. And it just sort of has those same beats, a lot of the same lines, but it just kind of misses because then you would eventually see The Wire and you're like, this is a much better version. And so, yeah, I think Clockers is, meh. It also was a financial failure. It cost $25 million, made, like, 13 at the box office. Uh, Girl 6. Not a fan. Yeah. It's a little weird. I agree. And... I never saw it like all the way through. It's about, this is about the era though, where I would watch a Spike Lee movie because it was him. And if it got about 30 minutes in and I just like was not into it, I would stop. I'd give it like an hour, yeah. mostly like girl six again, HBO, like nine o'clock at night. And I was just like, Oh, okay. And then I was like, this is, yeah, this is dumb. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't tell you anything. I can't, I don't want to get into it. Uh, get on the bus, which I actually thought was pretty fun. And is about some guys going to the Million Man March, different time period in America. It's 96, it's Clinton. It's going to Million Man March. It's, you know, kind of a fun movie, you know, that's about... It was funny, it's kind of like The Five Bloods a little bit, though, where it's some guys getting back together who hadn't seen each other in a while, and they're trying to figure out something that happened to them years ago at the original Million Man March. That's interesting that that's... Never didn't put that together. Hmm. I didn't see the movie. Okay. Like I was saying about the Robert Altman thing where he would eventually figure out what he wanted to do with a movie like that, but it would take him like 20 years to figure it out. Interesting. Um, 1998, he makes another one of, in my mind, his classic movies. He got game. We were talking about Denzel Washington as Jake Shuttlesworth and Ray Allen as Jesus Shuttlesworth. And I know Spike made a lot of cool 90s, 80s Nike advertisements and stuff like that and had connected himself into particularly the world of basketball. But I don't know. What do you think about He Got Game, Nick? He Got Game I like. It's a complicated movie. It is. It runs into that thing where like an hour in, it just hits that drag. Mm. But also Denzel Washington's character is a piece of shit. But because it's Denzel Washington, you like him anyways. Yes. And you know... From the beginning, he's not going to get anything out of this. Mm, agreed. And you know it's going to be a fruitless journey and it's going to be heartbreaking, but you still have some little bit of hope in there. And then, you know, Ray Allen's good. Yeah. I didn't realize it was Ray Allen until yeah. we rewatched it. A lot of professional basketball players in it. Rick Fox. Rick Fox. And then John Turturro is the basketball coach. It's kind of fun. That's fun. It's <laughs> so cringy. It is kind of cringy. But the part with... But it's supposed to be cringy. It's supposed to, yeah. He's supposed to be. Like, yeah. all creepy basketball coaches. And and he always does a little bit, but a little bit of documentary stuff where he has real basketball coaches for a second talk about it. He has real ESPN Sports Center guys talk about him. You know, the, it has this slightly documentary thing. Also, Ray Allen would become an amazing, amazing NBA player. And one time when he played for the Heat and I had a couple hundred dollars on the Spurs and I would have won like a thousand dollars and Ray Allen had to just hit two three-pointers in the last like eight seconds to fucking sink me. And I was like, stupid fucking he got game, Ray Allen, you asshole. Jesus, shut over dickhead. I think I may have yelled that at the screen because of my love of Ray Allen and that movie, but also... Yeah. I was like, it's so poetically perfect that fucking Jesus Shuttlesworth cost me this money. Anyway, but a little more fun than that is just listen to the JPEG Mafia song, Bald. Because at one point he just goes, like, he just literally says, I look like Ray Allen, which I just enjoy a lot because he really doesn't. He doesn't at all. 
<laughs> Holy shit. Oh, Peggy. But after that, he would have Summer of Sam and Bamboozled, which... What do, you, do you, what do you think of those two movies? Any of, the, any of that pop uh, out of you? Summer of Sam is fucking terrible. <laughs> it would be my least favorite Spike Lee movie until he remade Old Boy. <laughs> that's fair. That's, um, you know Old Boy is the only movie that's not called a Spike Lee joint? <laughs> he even was like, no, yeah. don't do, don't no, do that. No. <laughs> Call us Spike Lee on a drinking binge, just like fucking what's-his-face. Um, With Thanos in it? Bamboozle, again, I saw it once on HBO. Uh, I liked it. Yeah. But, like, I just never went back to it. I liked it a lot more than fucking Son of Sam. Oh, yeah. very Two very different styles of Spike Lee, too, where Son of Sam, the only thing I liked about Son of Sam was that he was making this 70s New York, and his version of 70s New York, I felt like it had this kind of pop to it. It had this weird Serpico 70s-ness to it. But, yeah, watching Adrian Brody do British accents and shit. Oh, God. Oh, boy. Also, like, Including the pests. This is my least oh, favorite John wow. Leguizamo movie. I said it. I don't care. <laughs> oh, it's I, And this is going to come up in the next movie we talk about. I have a problem where none of the characters are likable. Yeah. I'm not going to like the movie. Right. And this is the thing. It's like, you know, not all these characters were bad, but it's like, I didn't give a shit about any it. of them. It didn't have like a point. It was like. It was trying to truly try to be a Robert Altman movie where it was just about people wandering around New York in that summer. It had a point. It was like about mass hysteria and fear and shit like that. But it right. just he didn't do it well. It, no, just it came off like a fucking late John Carpenter movie. Yes. And also the idea of mass hysteria. That's a hard thing to make be about the 70s and you're in the 90s. Well, it's because of the blackout in the film. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's I know, but. It just, it didn't work, no matter what. Half the movie was just watching, like, New York guys have a conversation about how Reggie Jackson was the forty-four caliber killer, and it was just, all of it was, oh, what are you, what are you, some sort of, like, punk now? Like, yeah, I'm into punk. Like, oh, yeah, you you like the punk music? You, you're kind of, like, it's 1979, you know, because that's what punk music, it, it really had this weird, like, because you know it's 1979. I think people say what year it is, I want to say, like, eight times in the movie, and I was like, I get it. I know what this is. But sometimes when there are period pieces and they do that thing where they they make fun of it in like walk hard and stuff where they're like, I hope you don't die in a plane crash, buddy Holly. He's like, I sure hope I don't. You know? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, bamboozled. If you've never seen bamboozled, you should. It's crazy. That is a period piece that talks about all kinds of wild stuff, about blackface. It really, in your face, tells you about some of the racist history of Hollywood, which I think is why it led to it having such mixed reviews because, as we know, as we've seen in America, there is a very strange sense of delusion and forgetfulness about how racist America has been in the past. And when you try to bring it up, people, some people, let's call them racist, get very upset about it. But also people who are maybe not racist, who just, sometimes it's hard to deal with because it's not a cool thing. It's an uncomfortable thing. It's like why it's sometimes, it's not fun to watch a movie about the Holocaust, say, because it's rough. Shit is rough. And the history of blackface and minstrel shows and Satchmo characters in particularly American art, is very, very real. You can see it in when you go to antique stores, for instance, or when you talk about, say, the fact that D.W. Griffith, one of the great creators of cinema in general, 
made Birth of a Nation, you know, and we don't have cinema without D.W. Griffith, but he also made maybe one of the most racist pieces of art, maybe the most racist piece of art that the world has ever seen. So, um, I don't know, Nick, what do you, and you said you liked Bamboozled? Yes. <laughs> no, yeah, no, Bamboos is a good movie. I haven't seen it in 20 fucking years. Yeah, me too. He has so many movies, it's hard to keep up or rewatch. But, like, I remember seeing it and just thinking it was fucking nuts. Mm-hmm. And the way it's shot, it's very uh, different from the rest of the Spike Lee movies. And just uh, Damon Wayans' accent, I didn't really I, uh, go for. It's a little but weird. other than that, like, it's a, it's very in your face, and I, it should be. I and, agree. I feel like also because we, I don't think we have to mention him, but this is also when Spike Jones and Charlie Kaufman and stuff start to appear as well. And as a guy who notoriously is somebody who watches all the movies and goes to all the movies, I think Spike Lee saw some of this return of surrealism. And obviously he's always been a big fan of Terry Gilliam and you can feel that in a lot of his movies. But I think Bamboozled was a little bit of an attempt to kind of play with the new late 90s, early 2000s surrealism that was starting to appear. And... I like it. It's crazy. It's a crazy movie. You should check it out. All right. But then, as what did you call it? What patch did you call it of his career after this? Not yet. <laughs> There's a rough patch. Yeah. Well, because 2002 is another uh, movie that I think I really like called The 25th Hour about Ed Norton and his goatee. But then, in this movie, the most likable character is Rosario Dawson. <laughs> And the dude characters are all kind of misogynistic jerks, but they are interesting misogynistic jerks. And it's, I think, kind of one of his only movies where most of the actors and characters are white. And he wanted to do this, and he wanted to use a lot of actors that he had always wanted to work with, like some of our favorites here at the Blockbuster Film School, Mr. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh my God, what's wrong with me? Hannibal Lecter. Uh, Ed Norton. Ed, well, Ed Norton, but Brian Cox. Brian Cox. Brian is Cox. I think Rosario Dawson is great in it, actually. I think it's her best movie, to tell you the truth. I don't think it's her best movie. You don't think so? No. I like Ed Norton a lot in it. He's very charismatic. He carries that movie in a way that I don't think many other people could. But what do you think about The 25th Hour? I know we're kind of a little conflicted on it, but. I don't like it at all. Really? All the characters, except for Rosario Dawson. Ryan Cox, and the dog are a bunch of assholes. Right, right. There's no likable characters. I don't care what happens to anybody. Go to jail. Barry Pepper, shut the fuck up. Yeah, Barry Pepper. Eat with a fork. <laughs> Philip Seymour Hoffman, don't kiss your students. Yeah. Especially, I don't care. I know it's Paquin, but still. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> also... There's like two female characters in this, and one's Rosario Dawson. She gets treated like shit the whole movie because they think she's the one who fucking ratted him to the feds. Right. And the other one's Anna Paquin, who's literally just being used as sexy jailbite. Let me redo that. Like, <laughs> I was like, we'd be Whoa. Australian for a second. Sexy jailbite, mate. Um, <laughs> no, like she's just used as sexy jailbait yeah. to just prove how shitty everyone is. I know. I still strangely find myself caring about the characters because maybe it's just because I like Ed Norton so much and I find him a very compelling actor and he finds a way to be, to evoke empathy out of people whether you want to or not, you know? And I I think the directing in it is really clever and I've, I liked also Rodrigo Prieto who is the cinematographer for that, has a really interesting style. He does it at a different aspect ratio. He does it at a different frame rate. So there's kind of this grittiness to all of it. And 
I felt like the post 9-11 New York, I think that was the thing that was most interesting to me was that's really what the movie is about. It's about how weird New York became just after 9-11. But I understand what you're saying, though. I haven't seen it since I watched it a couple times, renting it from Blockbuster. I rewatched it this weekend. Yeah? I mean, it's well shot, it's well directed, but I don't care about any of the characters. And also, it was pre-9-11 when Ed Norton picked up a 17-year-old Rosario Dawson in the park. So it's a bunch of creepy dudes being creepy dudes. That's true. That's true. Well, but also maybe I liked it I will say this. I mean, it came out in 2002 when I was in high school. I saw it in the theater when I was in high school, and maybe there was just... Could you you stop? You're making Brian feel old. (laughs) I was a... I saw it it when I graduated high school in 2018. Um, So, there... And I know 2002 me was a little different than 2020 me. I would hope so. Yeah. But that's an interesting thing of movies that you liked at one point in your life, and then you still like later but you get something different from versus movies that you liked a lot when you were younger. And then when you watch them later, you're like, eh, I yeah. don't relate Fuck to you, this. Monster Squad. Yeah. <laughs> I don't relate to this in the same way. No. Um, so I will say that I did greatly enjoy it back then, but I don't know how I would feel about it now. 2004, though, The Falcon stars in a movie called She Hate Me, which... It's a lot of... <laughs> it's a lot of a lot. It's way too much of everything. You literally just have a bunch of men hating lesbians <laughs> wanting sperm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, what is going on? <laughs> There's a line for like satire and farce. And then that line is just like destroyed in a fucking fire. And you have no idea where the movie's going. And it's just not good. I agree. It also is him doing his stuff with Jim Brown in it and Brian Dennehy and Q-Tip and Biling. And I mean, <laughs> It's, it's all over the fucking place. All, Anthony Mackie is a very charismatic actor. He obviously now he's in Marvel movies. Anthony Mackie is doing just fine for himself. Anthony Mackie, another guy, though, who I feel like the only reason that movie is watchable is because of how charismatic Anthony Mackie is. But it is very stupid. And you want to talk about a movie that's misogynistic. Like, yeah. And I know that's, quote, unquote, kind of the point. Like I said, he's thinking about making a movie and it turns disastrous. But I will give him the credit of... He's broaching subjects, and sometimes when you're working on a balancing beam where it's like, you got to be careful, this is an interesting subject, but if you fall over on one side or the other, it's going to land in um, man-hating lesbians who want them to be impregnated by the Falcon. I don't <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> I remember watching all of it, though, and being like, what the fuck am I watching? <laughs> I remember flipping back and forth between that and like a rerun of Italian soccer. <laughs> Like, I was like, well, <laughs> I know there's a goal coming up. Yes. So I should really just focus on that and yes. then, like, go back to this when I know it's just them falling back on defense and just kicking it around. <laughs> also, at the time, there was a thing that happened where Vince McMahon created a alternate football league called the XFL, right? Where one of the things in the XFL you could do is on the back of your jersey. It didn't have to be your last name. You could have a nickname on your back of your jersey. And famously, Rod Smart put, he hate me. <laughs> On the back of his jersey, which I don't know what that means, but that's still a joke where if you talk to people about the XFL, sometimes they're like, he hate me. It just immediately is like, yep, Rod Smart was he hate me. <laughs> also, this is a plug for Alex's XFL podcast <laughs> coming soon on the Brian Tepps Network. Hope you guys want to talk about some Chicago enforcers and some Alabama Jacks. It's the worst serial I've ever had in my life. <laughs> 
just tastes like Vince McMahon's sweat. All right. Uh, Can I leave? Which is mostly just creatine. But in 2006, he decides to say, you know what? I'm going to try my hand at being a little more of a studio guy. I'm going to go. I feel like it from here on out, it's like he just tries genres. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, he said to himself, you know who people seem to like when I cast him and stuff? Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington. <laughs> and those movies tend to make money. <laughs> yeah. But he makes Inside Man in 2006. So Brian Grazer produces it, Imagine Entertainment. Now, this is these are big dogs. They are making a studio, big-budget summer movie. You know what I'm saying? And it's interesting they take Spike to Helmet because this is more of a twisty-turny thriller about heist. It's heisty. It's got... Interesting characters, Clive Owen and Jodie Foster, and I don't know. The twist, I feel like, uh, spoiler alert, there's a twist in it. It's that Bruce Willis is that guy wearing that wig. and <laughs> You literally beat me to the joke. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I watched it once. I was like, cool. I watched it a long time ago, and then we had the heist episode, and I talked mad shit about it. And you're like, you should rewatch it. So I was like, I'll rewatch it. Mm. And I didn't really have to. I feel like the best part of this movie is just the scenes where people are just talking. Which I feel like is a lot of Spike Lee's yeah, movies early like, on. I didn't really buy any of it. <laughs> no, I definitely didn't buy it. No. No. It's silly. But it's got that Hollywood thing. Like, did it, you buy any of Die Hard with a Vengeance? You know, I mean. Up until the last hour. <laughs> we are going to rob Fort Knox. I like Jeremy Irons. I like Jeremy Irons too, but yeah, no, it's not. I mean, here's the thing: it's a diehard movie. Yeah. You know what you're getting into, right? When you go see Clive Owen at the height of Clive Owen before you look like a vodka bottle, and <laughs> <laughs> Denzel and Jodie Foster yeah. and everybody in here is very good. They're very charismatic. Yes, he always has people from the wire in all of his movies, dating back to Do the Right Thing. Fucking Ziggy, yeah, Ziggy, come on. <laughs> Um, um, but like, here's the thing. It's just entertaining enough to get through it. Yeah. None of it's believable. Nobody does anything that makes any goddamn sense. Right. And, uh, again, another misogynistic movie, but like there's less female characters, so it's not as misogynistic. It's also, yeah, about like cops and stuff. So yeah. you're like, everybody's being weird. And, yeah. but like you said, Everybody loves Denzel. Everybody loves Denzel, but after She Hate Me, to come back and make Inside Man and with a budget of $40 million and to make $200 million and for it to really be a big financial success allowed Spike Lee to kind of stay and make movies. You know what I'm saying? Like, She Hate Me lost a lot of money. And I feel like it doesn't matter how much money right. he loses. He has enough clout. He will always make money. He I will agree. always make movies. You're right. He's kind of like Scorsese. Someone will always take a shot on whatever he wants yeah, to do Yeah, I mean, between, like, uh, Casino and fucking whatever, he his movies lost a lot of money. That I mean, true. he fucking made Kundan. Yeah, yeah. All right, but have you ever seen Miracle of St. Anna? That's his Disney movie. Uh, I have not. I have not. So I got to say, sorry, everybody. I know it's Blockbuster Film School, but... When I heard Spike Lee was making a Disney movie, I didn't care. I don't know. I Maybe it's good. You talked about Red Hook Summer, a kind of sequel to a lot of characters. She brings yeah. some characters from She's Gotta Have It, Do the Right Thing, Crooklyn. Bring back Mookie. Yeah. Mookie. He, Mookie. Got, he got game. It's like a his, you know, sort of ensemble sequel piece of 
Yeah, but I've watched a lot of the parts from this on YouTube. Mm. And in the twist at the end, it gets real fucking weird. It gets very weird. But he loves doing that. Yeah. He has to have a the things the turn. violent twist at the end. Either a violent twist or, I mean, you know that in he or you're got, banging you know, your daughter. Right. You know, or you know when he got game, like, he's going to get screwed. Yeah. Like, he's, there's no way he's not going to bring this up. Yeah. Um, does the guard shoot him? Or does he live? I don't know. It's interesting. I don't know. That's the debate, you know? Also, I didn't think about this. I read this uh, a couple days ago. Spike Lee said this. People present this theory to him that in the end of Do the Right Thing, Mookie throws the trash can through the window to save those assholes from being murdered. Oh, no. That's what I'm saying. It's the perfect thing to do. Yeah. It. It, he didn't direct it thinking it that way, though. Oh, interesting. I wow, He likes the idea, and he's yeah. not going to discount it. In his own words, right. Mookie threw the garbage can through the window because that was the right thing to do. Right. Destroy Sal's. But people present him with this idea that he's saving right. Sal and his kids, and like he goes, oh, I like that a lot. Yeah, I, I thought that was what he was like. Mookie was like, this is the thing I have to do for both. I, yeah. have, to, I have to destroy Sal's and fan the flames truly because everyone's pissed, but also I know these idiots at Sal's are my friends, and it, the only way to save them is for this place to yeah. burn. Like, because otherwise they're going to kill them, you know. And he was like, "If the place is on fire, they can get away," you know. Yeah. And I, wow, that's crazy. Because I thought that was the idea. Yeah, th- it's yeah, it's the right thing to do. And you know, the wrong thing to do: bring back Mookie. Say he's been <laughs> delivering pizzas for Sal for twenty years, and that's why he put his kid through college. Yeah, Rosie Perez Ugh. deserves a better father I, to her kid. That is true. They don't have to be together, right? But it is weird. What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> Nobody puts their kid through college by delivering pizzas yep. for 20 fucking years, no matter how good of a driver you are. Also, 2013, you take everyone. It's like, okay, one of our coolest, most nuanced action actors, Mr. Josh Brolin, in tons of cool stuff. And everyone says, what's the coolest Josh Brolin movie? It's the remake of Old Boy by <laughs> Said no one. Said no one in the history of time because it's stupid. Took me three days to watch this movie. Also, Josh Brolin has a similar story about how he realized he had a problem with drinking because of Old Boy because he was so just like, what the fuck am I doing? He said he was like housing like a handle of whiskey like every day just to because he was so stressed out and so like, what am I fucking doing? And it's not that he stopped drinking. He was like, I gotta, I gotta cut back. (laughs) I gotta. What am I doing? It kind of has that. Super Mario Brothers, Bob Hoskins thing where... Yeah. <laughs> except after Old Boy, then Josh Brolin kind of had the best years of his career after Old Boy when he was in, like, No Country and in... No Country's before this, but I mean, like, he's Thanos. You know what I'm saying? Sorry. But, you know, what do you what he's the main villain in the biggest box office movies of all time and making big old money, just making... <laughs> Making big old money. See, the original old boy. The yeah, original Korean old sakes. boy is cool. This one was unnecessary. You want to talk about a movie that didn't need to be remade? Why? It's not like the original old boy was that old or flawed. It's the original old boy came out, what, like 2003 or something? It's. Yeah. And then his next movie is another terrible remake. Yeah. What do you think of this? The Sweet I didn't Blood see of it. Jesus. Instead, I went and watched Ganja and Hess. Ganjan Hess is fucking great. It is. I don't know anything about this. The reviews I read were fucking terrible, so I skipped it. But on the plus side, it led me to Ganjan Hess, which is right. a fucking great movie. True. Also, Bruce Hornsby did the music for it. So that's fun. <laughs> for which one? 
for the sweet blood of Jesus. Walking in Memphis? Yeah. Yeah, it's a glad I didn't see it. That's just the way it is. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's... I did see it, and it's got Rami Malek in it. That happened. <laughs> but then, 2015, he made Chirac. We were talking about this. I feel like Chirac has quite a few flaws. I at least like that it's interesting. It's based on a Greek myth, a Greek story about these women who, in Greek society, want to stop the Peloponnesian War by not having sex with their husbands anymore and basically creating a sex strike so that the men realize that what they're doing is stupid and is an interesting point about how sex and male and female relationships in the Western world. And even though this kind of comes through in Chirac, I feel like it just, it was an Amazon movie that was shot on digital, not on film, and looked like a soccer game. You know what I'm saying? It was, the lighting is bad, the filming is bad. It also felt like you were exploiting a real thing that happens in Chicago. Like, I was hoping Spike Lee would come to Chicago and actually shoot in Inglewood and actually tell a story about Inglewood and about what's going on in Chicago. And even though I know what he's saying, but it's this very goofy, bombastic movie that's based on a Greek myth. And I feel like even the term Chirac is exploitive to the real mayhem problems we have here in Chicago of systemic racism, of police violence, of food deserts, of and it just kind of made a goofy movie, a fun goofy movie called Chirac, which is a dumb term that, you know, something it's like something that like Trump would say, you know, he would call Chicago Chirac. It's I don't know. I did, I kind of I kind of hated it. I'm going to say that. I don't know. Did you what did you refuse say? to watch it? Okay. <laughs> Fair. But in 2018 he bounces back with I think a movie we both like, a movie called Black Klansman. Yes. Um which I think is one of his best movies. It really... It is, and I want to bring this up, hmm. and I realize we were talking about this yesterday. The movie is, the whole thing is, against the KKK, which, yes. obvious. Yeah. KKK is fucking terrible, and hopefully someday somebody will just gather them all up and put them on a boat and sink it. Yes. But... They tried, rally, <laughs> uh-huh. they tried to do it at that Trump rally. They tried to do it at that Trump boat parade where a bunch yeah, of boats got... it's <laughs> a good... Baby steps. Mm-hmm. Baby steps. I like this movie a lot. Very entertaining. Everyone in it is fucking great. Yeah. Again, working with the Washingtons. Yes. And the main problem is this is, in real life, the cop brought in the KKK, but he also brought in a lot of Black Panthers, and he was mm. trying to get them to fight each other to cancel each other out. So part of this is cop propaganda. Yeah. Putting that aside, entertainment-wise... Acting-wise, directing, pacing, cinematography, fat assholes blowing up their husbands. This movie's great. (laughs) Also, Topher Grace is the head of the KKK, as David Duke is one of the craziest things I've ever seen. And you know I love Topher Grace, but I think it's my favorite. Not like I love David Duke, but I love the idea of letting Topher Grace do his heel turn, which when I liked him as the bad guy at American Ultra, I liked letting Topher Grace be the bad guy. I think he's so good at it as this weird little weasel dick motherfucker. And Adam Driver just... He's great. Being Adam Driver-y in it. It also is going back to it's well-paced, it's funny, but it's also got real stakes. You, the action sequences actually, the action sequences in this! Are really good. (laughs) Also, I want to bring this up. I read this in another review by somebody 
I forgot their name, but <laughs> a lot of his best movies since the eighties, he didn't write the screenplays. Mm, I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. He didn't write this. Yes. And the other one that I loved in the nineties that he did was Crooklyn, which he wrote with his sister, Joey, who's mm. also a fucking great filmmaker and writer Agreed. and one of his other brothers. And it's like, 25th Hour he didn't write? You love that movie? Yeah. I don't know. He wrote this, The Five Bloods. He did, and I feel like you can feel that. Yeah. You know? I feel like that. It's also, it's also Spike has a lot to say. Yes. Sorry to cut you off, but Spike has a lot to say, and he doesn't know how to trim it down. Which I hope that, as we were talking about, I hope he's building towards that movie, because the thing that I liked the most about The Five Bloods was almost the little documentary shots in there. Yeah. Where someone an interesting unknown black hero is referenced. And then just quickly, it's like, this is who they are. You know what I'm saying? And I was like, that's cool. I actually yeah. really liked that where, you know, this is a, maybe a story that not many people know. And just a little 30 second documentary about that person, boom. And then back into the story. And I was like, that's really cool. The actual story of the five bloods is kind of comic booky and, yeah. um, it's long. It's very long. And like, it's so disappointing. Cause like, when Delroy Lindo freaks out on the boat, yes. Uh, when they're first going out there and they get to the market, yeah. like that fucked me up. Yeah. That was real ass shit. It's intense. But then eventually, it just keeps going on and on and on to the point where it's like caricature. Yeah, yeah. And then they're shooting all everybody up and they're doing all this, and it's like, well, you lost me. Yeah. And there's still forty minutes left. I know. And also, I liked the idea of the story of the that they had a secret treasure that they had hidden that they were going back to get. I was like, this is a cool idea. Yeah. And it almost seemed to lose that at a certain point. Yeah. Where I was like, the treasure, where's the treasure? That's a cool idea. And I wonder a little bit if maybe Black Panther himself was maybe sick and couldn't shoot some of the stuff. I'm now wondering a little bit. RIP. But I feel like he shot all of his stuff. I think you're probably right. I do. It's just, it's, yeah. I mean, Chadwick Boseman is very good in it. I think it's maybe he's, the best part of that movie and the maybe his best role that I saw him in. I don't know. I felt like that character was hard to pull off and I thought he pulled it off, but yeah. So yeah, I don't know what to say about the five bloods. Cause it also feels like you said, it feels like it's wonky. a lot of stuff there. That's good. Yeah. But the stuff that's bad outweighs it to the point where, like I said, like at the beginning of this episode, like black Klansman is, yeah. Just on point. Mm. And the Five Bloods diverts in like three different canals. It's <laughs> very interesting. And like you said, someone else wrote it. And so Spike, as a director, it's interesting that he can come up with his authorship but has a blueprint. When it's his blueprint, it feels like he's not even entirely sure. And yeah. his authorship goes off on all these different directions. And so I would love to see another movie that he makes. Because also he's made some documentaries. And... The Spike Lee black history, the unknown black history that's coming up in the Five Bloods, I almost was like, please just make that movie. Can I watch that movie? Yeah. I would love to watch that right now. Could I see that? And instead of watching Delroy Lindo be a weird black Republican. All right, but that's the Spike Lee career, I believe. I think we should do a Blockbuster Film School wall. What do you say? Yeah. I don't think we need to dumpster it because we talked about his whole career. We talked about the ones we did. Also, like I said, I don't- Oh, boy. Oh, boy, Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, his next film, Prince of Cats. Interesting. Is it is it about cats? Is it about no, the making a, of the movie Cats? No, it's a Shakespeare cats? thing. I know. It's, yeah. I know. 
<laughs> he does like he is like I said. He's Trust a, me, I saw Cats. He's not remaking it. It's also interesting because I think it's something that maybe it's racism in America. Maybe it's just kind of his personality of yelling at Reggie Miller on the sidelines of a basketball game. But people don't necessarily realize just how smart and well educated Spike Lee is, and how like Chirac is about an ancient Greek legend. You know, I mean, this is the guy knows his history. He knows Shakespeare. He knows drama. He knows character structure. He taught at Tisch School of the Arts. He's one of America's smartest filmmakers, but I think that kind of gets into, like we were talking about the problem with the five bloods is sometimes people can be so smart that they overthink things and try to stuff too much stuff inside and try to, you know, become too cerebral and lose it a little bit. You know, they try to write gravity's rainbow, you know, it's like everything has to be mayhem and it doesn't always have to be. And I think when Spike is, able to pull back and harness that it's and laser it, it becomes amazing, but it can scatter shot real fast. But yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. The dumpster is old boy. <laughs> Without a doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck old boy. Fuck old boy. It sucks. Even Piece he said shit. it sucks. He's like, this sucks. We're in simpatico on that. Yeah. So it's time for the blockbuster film school wall. <laughs> All right, Nick, uh, what's your, say, number four for Mr. Spike Lee? Number four is Crooklyn. Ooh, I like it. I yeah. like it. It's good. It's just a good movie, and it's just fucking, yeah, it's just a fucking good movie. The it characters is. are good. The acting's good. You could tell how personal it is. Yeah. And That's Del- what I like the most. And Delroy Lindo being awesome in it. Yeah, as yeah. a fucking jackass. <laughs> My number four, I'm going to say School Days. I really like it. I really like how wild it is when I saw it when I was a kid and I was like, is this what college is like? And it's not exactly, but it kind of is. It's crazy. And if you haven't seen it, you should. Joe Seneca, a lot of people like Larry Fishburne, Giancarlo Esposito, a lot of people I like, a lot of people who are still running around as big time actors, really starting off as young, wild character actors, Ossie Davis, Ellen Holly. These people like you should check it out. You should check out School Days. It's worth a watch. What's your number three, Nick? I'm upset about it. Mm. Just to say it, I'm upset about it. Getting upset. Yeah. It's Black Klansman. Ooh. Why fucking upset? cop propaganda aside, yes. it's a good fucking movie. It's very entertaining. Yes. Uh, I cared about all the characters. Mm. And, you know, the female characters were well flourished and well thought out. And True. they were fucking strong people. And it's a good movie. And also, it's like, I like how a lot, end of a lot of his movies... He shows modern day stuff. Yeah. And at the end of this, he shows those dipshits with their fucking tiki torches oh. walking around. They even have the fucking decency to cover up their stupid, ugly white faces. Just marching through the streets and running people over with fucking cars. Yeah. He dedicates the car to the protester. Yeah. Dedicates the, God damn it. The movie. <laughs> he dedicates the movie yes. to the protester who got killed yes. by that fucking dipshit. Mm-hmm. Um, fuck the KKK. Fuck the KKK. KKK took my baby away. This is an important movie. Just at face value, KKK is bad. Also, we didn't bring it up. Harry Belafonte delivering that monologue. Oh, man. Devastating. Yes. Love Harry Belafonte. Yes. Also, him with second generation Washingtons. It's nice. It's nice. I have one word for you. Tenant. (laughs) My number three, he got game. He got game. I I love that movie as a kid, and we watched it recently. 
Uh, I watched it yesterday, actually, and I got different things out of it this time, but I still liked it. I know it's weird. I know the characters are weird, but they're supposed to be weird. I know the female characters in it are strange, but the male characters in it are strange. Everybody's a weird, strange thing when it comes down to money and capitalism and the golden boy. And I think Ray Allen's actually pretty good in it. I think he's, and Denzel's amazing in it. Yeah. He managed, like you said, he manages to make an unlikable character bizarrely likable. It's that last scene though, where they play basketball against each other. That's great. And he beats his ass and he gives him that little, like, you got to get that fucking hate out of your heart. Like, I, man, I always, that stuck in me. Yeah. Stuck also, in me my whole life. Also, I brought it up earlier, but the JPEG Mafia song, Bald, has a remix featuring Denzel Curry. Yeah. So, manager working in twice. Oh, in, oh interesting. Yeah. What's your two? My two is do the right thing. Yeah. Oh, your two. A two. Interesting. Maybe we flip. I think we're flipping here. Because my two is Malcolm X. So. My number one is not Malcolm X. Oh, okay. All right, well. Do the Right Thing is a fucking classic. Everybody in it is great. Fucking Ozzie Davis is the yeah. mayor. Um, Ozzie Davis is amazing. He is amazing. <laughs> I love, love Ozzie Davis. Yes. Yeah, no, this movie is... It's all the stuff. It's up there. Yeah, it's it really is. fucking... It's a classic. It is a true cinema classic. Yeah. It doesn't have... Is it too long? Flaws or weird? Spike Lee? Is this getting into weird misogynistic territory? It is a... It does a little... It does, but it's an effing classic, though. I'm sorry. Do the right thing. You need to see it. If you're a movie nerd, you need to see Do the Right Thing. If you've never seen it, especially right now, especially at this moment, like you said, this shouldn't be as timely as it is because it came out 30 years ago, but it is extremely timely yeah. and important. My number two is Malcolm X, which I love it. I love Denzel in it. Like, Plymouth Rock landed on us. Like, it's, it's amazing. Just see Malcolm X. It's amazing. It's an amazing story. He's an amazing, interesting character in history the history of America and the history of the world. Angela Bassett is amazing in it. It's, yeah, see Malcolm X. What's your number one, Nick? My number one, we sort of uh, brushed over his documentary stuff because he made the original Kings of Comedy, which... Oh, um, that's true. I'm not a fan of everybody in there, but I love Bernie Mac. We brought yep. that up in the heist episode. Yes. Also, I've always had this dream of doing a cover while doing stand-up comedy, and mine would be Bernie Mac talking about people going on break cheese sandwiches, but <laughs> also the Kings of comedy, like being so influential as a comedy documentary and coming out. In, I saw it in theaters yeah, and that then the comedians of comedy, which I also really love. That was great. Yeah. And it just had so much influence. You're totally right. The, oh, so that's not my number one though. Oh, what's your number one? My number one is four little girls. His other documentary is it is the first documentary made in 97. It's about a bombing of a church in Birmingham, Alabama by the KKK where four girls were killed. The movie is amazing. It's yeah. just, it's just you get immersed in this, everything in it, where they just, it's archival footage. It's just talking to the people who were there. It's talking to the family. Like, it's the most yeah. simple and complex and just heartbreaking movie he's ever made. Mm. And again, it's the fucking KKK. It's racism. It's, burning churches and nobody fucking doing a goddamn thing about it. Stuff, there were laws that came out of this because of this, but like there were churches that were bombed and burned down before that. And there's been a bunch fucking since they convicted one fucking KKK mm, guy mm. out of the four planted the bombs. Uh, Even that guy a, was like the dude they made take the fall. He was like, exactly. He was one. a fucking patsy. He was a yeah. dipshit. Yeah. 
It's a fucking shame that it's as relevant as it is as it is today. It's true. As it was when they made it fucking 23 years ago, but also the fact that this happened in what? 1963. Yeah. And the fucking yeah. shit doesn't stop. We should be home by now. Yeah, it's true. It's totally true. I agree. It's an amazing documentary. And his documentaries are really good. Also, he made tons of interesting, funny, like, Taco Bell commercials. And I know that's not, I'm not trying to segue those as the same. But as a versatile filmmaker, like, he made awesome commercials. He made awesome documentaries. He's made awesome feature films. He's made awesome vignettes and shorts. And, you know what I'm saying? This is, the guy is an amazing filmmaker. You ask him to do something, he does swing for the fences. And as someone who swings for the fences, you strike out sometimes. But if you hit a home run, you hit the shit out of it. And... He does that a lot. Mine, we already talked about it, but it's do the right thing. Do the right thing is, in my opinion, it's still the thing that is the most spikely. It is still the thing that is, you need to watch this. Like, if someone says, show me a Spike Lee thing. I've never seen a Spike Lee thing. What do you show? Sweet blood Jesus. <laughs> she hate me. <laughs> Girl sex. <laughs> um, no, it's do the right thing. You show them fucking do the right thing. Yeah. You sit them down. You tell them you're going to laugh for a little while, and then the reality's going to set in. Yeah, true. Well, team, I think we did a good job. I know Brian Tapps did. I know Nick did. I probably didn't, but it's okay. That's okay. That's normally how it operates here at the Blockbuster Film School. I'm Alex Bonner with Nicholas Souter and Super Producer Brian Tapps. We love the shit out of you guys. If you're still listening, we have a Patreon. You want to throw us a couple bucks so Super Producer Brian Tapps can get a microphone. The Patreon, as I'm being told by Super Producer Brian Tapps, is patreon.com backslash Blockbuster Film School. You can check that out. Definitely we're on Instagram. Nicholas Sider does a great job running our Instagram. So if you want to follow us, hit us up, say hello, give us suggestions for episodes or things you want to listen to, feel free. Just follow us, tell your friends, subscribe, like us, maybe put a review. It helps a lot. It helps a lot and we love you. I had a grand old time. Spike Lee is, you know, you love him, you hate him. You don't like some of his movies, but he is one of truly the world's great filmmakers. And... I'm glad that we did this episode. Me too. It's fun to talk about him. I look like Ray Allen. You do look exactly like Ray Allen. If you guys know what Nick looks like, he looks like a young Ray Allen. All right, team. We'll see you next week here at Blockbuster Film School. We love you. Do drugs. Have a good time. We'll see you then.